Are you ready? All right. Loved ones, friends, he is risen. He is risen indeed. This is the good news. Well, on March, uh, March 29th, 2020, which was basically about a month into the, you know, pandemic arriving in America, about a couple weeks into quarantine across America, um, some good news, SNG, was kicked off with its host, John Krasinski. Many of you may just know him as Jim. It was launched on YouTube, and approximately 330,000 people subscribed on the first day. 3.1 million people watched within the first 24 hours that first episode. Now, you can see John has high graphics made by his two young daughters behind him, sitting in his Brooklyn office as he produced this show. Featured all kinds of folks on there, from you know, Brad Pitt doing the weather, to having the entire cast of Hamilton show up on different Zoom boxes for one 10-year-old girl who was going to come to see Hamilton but got canceled. She and her mom couldn't come because it got shut down. And so they gathered the whole cast and, and sang to her one of the favorite songs uh, from that and just, just watch her beaming. They had all kinds of folks on there. They, they hosted a, a prom for those who couldn't go to prom, a live, live well, digital prom featuring all kinds of singers and Songwriters, and they even brought a couple of healthcare workers from the Boston area and were able to like give them full lifetime access tickets to the Boston Red Sox, which I guess is something special. Um, <laughs> I'm neither a Boston Red Sox fan or a baseball fan, so apparently that really is not there. But it's the healthcare workers that were in the trenches were cared for, and it lifted all of our spirits. There was a sense of something significant was happening. Over $2.5 million were raised. Within those eight episodes, 72 million views over the course of those eight weeks. In the middle of this difficult, uncertain, and fearful season, Jim Krasinski told good stories. He shared hope and encouragement, and indeed he gave us some good news. And it really did. It buoyed our spirits. For those of us who watch, it was fun to, to wait for the next episode. But make no mistake, 2,000 years ago, in the middle of all of history's uncertainty, in the midst of all of history's evil and fears and even suffering, Jesus broke out of a tomb. And that is the good news. Jesus is alive, and that changes everything for everyone. But why? Why does Jesus raising from the dead change things? Why does the fact that he rose, in a sense, matter? What difference does it make truly? Well, this Easter, I want to... Um, kind of try and answer that question by looking at, well, uh, something that happened on the first Easter day. But something that, in my opinion, is a little bit of a mystery. And you're thinking, there's no mystery to Easter. If you've been in church for any amount of time, there's only so many passages you can choose from. Watch me. <laughs> Let me show you what I mean. So in, in Luke 24, uh, which is the Luke's account of, of the resurrection, 
Uh, we find that there's these two disciples of Jesus, not one of the, some of the 12, but two disciples that have left Jerusalem after the crucifixion, and they're on the road heading towards a place called Emmaus. And Jesus appears to them. Now, initially, they don't know it's him. And next, you know, they sit down. Jesus breaks the bread, and they're like, it's Jesus. And then he's taken away. And so what they do is they rush back to Jerusalem. And this is where we pick it up in Luke chapter 24, verse 33. And they rose, that is these two, that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the 11, that is the 12 minus Judas, and those who were with them gathered together saying, and this is what the 12 and the others are saying to them, they say, the Lord has risen indeed, you know, what you said a minute ago, and has appeared to Simon. Has appeared to Simon? Has appeared to Simon? When? Where? What, what did Simon say? What, see what happened there? <laughs> what did Jesus say? Like, what happened? We don't know. Now, to be fair, all the other appearances that show up in the Gospels where Jesus is interacting with a particular person are told with just a considerable amount of detail. We get a lot of particularities about what's happening around and in the midst of it. The John's account, for example, that Becky just read of Jesus' conversation with Mary Magdalene is just beautiful. Like it's rich and it's got color and texture and, and meaning and clarity. Luke does the same thing with the full detail around those two that go to Emmaus. There's unreal amount of conversation between Jesus and these two guys. We don't even know their names. But we know all the conversation and finally them seeing the prophets and their eyes being opened and what's happening at the table. And we'll find ourselves in just a couple minutes after, you know, after this, these, uh, these two arrive and, and there's, the disciples are there. And just a couple minutes later, Jesus is going to show up right there in that room. Just boom, he's inside. And, and we get a ton of information about that. We find out all the particulars about the fact that Jesus is going to come in. They're going to freak out. They're going to freak out. He's going to say, it's okay, I'm not a ghost. It's really me. You can look at my hands. You can look at my feet. You can look at my side. And then he says, hey, in case that doesn't work, give me a piece of fish and I'll eat it. And he does, and you know, as he eats that piece of fish, it bolsters their faith, their fledgling uncertainty. And man, that's a lot of information. Lots of things about these specific encounters, and yet with regard to what made up Jesus' individual appearance to Peter on that day, there's just silence. We don't know. From the record, not, not one word escaped Peter's lips as to what took place in the conversation between the most famous of all deniers and his Lord. Which I think, honestly, is, is both fascinating and, and honestly, I believe, significant. Now, in order to take in, I think, some of the significance of, of why does this matter? Why is this particularly important? We have to enter, I think, some of the state of mind and some of the reality of what had and was unfolding with Peter in the days leading up to this day. If you're familiar with the biblical narrative and the hours that were leading up to Jesus' death, you remember that, that Peter, in the upper room, like, did the boast of all boasts, which is the thing you don't do when you're on a team. You're like, hey, all those guys might fail, but I'm not going to. You know, that's how you make friends and influence people, you know? Um, but he's like, no, 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 everyone may run away, everyone may fail you, everyone may deny you, but I will not. And then he doubles down in the garden, right? If you remember, in the garden, the soldiers come to take Jesus away, and it's Peter, right, pulls out that sword, and he's the one who slices the ear off of the servant of the high priest. 
only to find that Jesus rebukes him for it. And as though to nullify his very loyalty and bravery, takes that ear or maybe just reaches up and heals that man. A new ear for Malchus. And from that moment, everyone runs away. And in that moment, Peter runs away. Well, he doesn't run away entirely. He actually goes a little bit into the shadows. He, he follows along. He moves into the court of the priests and and from that spot, from that distance, from those shadows, the only time he finds himself coming to the light, the light of the fires, is to live out the three consecutive public denials. The very ones that Jesus had told him he would and the very ones he swore he never could. Luke captures the culmination of these three denials in incredibly vivid detail. In chapter 22, verse 60, he says... But Peter said, after being asked the question, he says, man, I do not know what you're talking about. Denial three. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept Bitterly. The loud show of cowardice and denial instantly changed into a sorrow as he saw Jesus' eyes. And the bitter tears that fell were not just because of the denial, but because of the sudden realization in the already bruised face of Jesus that he had failed his Lord. Peter, wrestling with believing that he would never be able to explain to Jesus how he had broken his own heart by doing so, having seen the guilt, his own guilt reflected in Jesus' eyes, that he would never see him alive again. So what unfolded in Peter after those, those fateful tears, those bitter tears? Well, Peter chose to stay away. That's what we know from the narrative. His guilt is heavy on his heart. His, his cowardice and his failure are just running a loop round and round in his mind and his heart. At noon, the cloud that's covering, the cloud of shame that's covering his own heart is, is, is met by an actual darkness that comes over the land for, for three hours. And so that tragic Friday passes by with Peter away, wondering, and then a Saturday, long Saturday, goes by. Now, at some point, Peter rejoins with the other disciples that had also scattered. And the events of the cross are likely described to him, maybe by John, who was at the cross, or maybe by some of the women who also remained until the end at the cross, describing the agony, describing the hours, describing the cries. Undoubtedly, the cumulative effect of these three days on Peter have left him melted, melted heart of profound sorrow and grief. And so just imagine what hope must have flooded his heart, his soul, when, when an announcement is made by a set of women that come and say that the tomb is empty. Not only was the tomb empty, they say, 
which of course seems absolutely unthinkable, even though Jesus said it, but there was a particularity to the message that pertained directly to him. From the angel from the grave, we hear in in Mark 16, the angel and the angel, or he, said to them, that is the women, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But now go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, that you will see him just as he told you. But go. Tell his disciples and Peter. And Peter. Can you imagine being Peter and hearing those words? They said to come and to tell you all and to, and to tell you, Peter, that he, he's going to see you. Even Peter. John 20 captures what unfolds at that moment as they come and tell this story. Uh, Peter like rushes out. Apparently he knows exactly where the tomb is at this point and so he and John rush out to go to the tomb to see indeed, is it empty? Is Jesus really not there? And John runs fast and Peter runs slow and I don't know, we always assume that John's like a sprinter and you know, and, and, and Peter's kind of like, I don't know. Uh, they're both fishermen, it's not like they're, you know. But um, Peter's slower, and maybe he's slower because his heart's a little heavy. Maybe he's a little afraid. I don't know. I don't know. But he gets there second, but he goes straight in, and, and he sees the reality that, indeed, he is not here. It says that John sees and believes, but the other, one of the other gospels says that Peter leaves wondering, and it says the disciples went home from there. He doesn't quite know what this means, What has happened exactly? And so another day begins to pass. But at some unknown hour on that day of days, Jesus stood in front of Peter alone. Now what can we know about a conversation that we know nothing about? What can we know about an event that, well, there's no record of? I think we can know some things. What did Jesus' appearance say to the repentant Peter, the sorrowful, heartbroken Peter? Well, of course, it said the same thing that it says to us today. That sin and death are conquered. Jesus showing up declares that sin and death are conquered, Peter. It changed the whole outlook, the whole atmosphere from from darkness to sunshine. But there was a special message for Peter. It said that, same thing that says to us, that no no addiction, no no past evil, no present selfishness, no sin, no, no denial, Peter, can ever block, can ever impede, or will ever deter the love of Christ. Peter, no doubt, as soon as he heard about the resurrection, the fact that this had happened, the fact that it dawned on him that this might be a reality, had to have wrestled with the competing hope in his heart and the competing fear in his heart. 
wondering if he has risen, is he going to want to see me? See him. And now here's Jesus in front of him, answering that question. Arisen, alive, with likely a quiet look on his face that says, despite the magnitude of your denial, look, Peter, I have come to you. I have come for you. Loved ones, friends, in our lives, whether it's a blatant public moment of rejection or, or the countless private sins that we run to to make our life work without God. Let me remind you that on this Easter morning that the risen Jesus comes to you. That no sin of yours can keep him out. That no denial of yours can withstand the living presence of restoring love and grace. What is the message from the events that we know about from this? What is the message from the events that, well, we know nothing about? That Jesus Christ is always near to those who with a broken heart will confess and repent. Always. He is always near. The one who knew and who heard the repentant tears of the denier and of the repentance that would come from him also knows and hears in you the faintest whisper of sorrow, of sorrow for your sin, and he is drawn in, drawn in by grace and by love. And today, seated as the resurrected king at the right hand of the Father, you can hear this reality from Isaiah 57, which is true today. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, listen, I dwell in high and holy places and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. What does this look like in your life? What has this looked like in your life? What does it look like for Jesus to come to you, to come for you? Well, um, over the years, I've, I've shared publicly from stage here and individually with a lot of people about uh, my journey and some of the unfaithfulness I, that was true of me in my early stages of our marriage when I was in the Air Force. And that was a time in which, like Peter, I was really likely primarily denying and rejecting the one that I claimed to love and claimed to want to serve in order to take care of myself. I lived for the better part of two years with this divided heart, with this kind of, honestly, tortured soul. And like Peter, I preferred to stay away from the gaze of Jesus, honestly. I didn't want to look him in the face because I knew what was true. I knew what I had chosen. I knew what I was still choosing, and I just couldn't do it. But I'll never forget during a deployment that I did uh, to Saudi Arabia for 60 days, 
Um, I found myself <laughs> in a place where there was nothing, nothing to do, and very few people, very uncomfortable. And in all that discomfort, God began to whisper to me, began to meet me, began to beckon me, to invite me. And it was real subtle through a couple people, through a couple situations. I started reading some books that were left over and a few things I'd brought with me that I honestly brought because I, I wasn't sure if I would ever read them, but maybe, just maybe. And God began to meet me, to stir my heart. And I'll never forget, there was this one particular night and um, my schedule was all upside down because I was flying all kinds of hours of the night and so I would be up in the middle of the night and then fly during the night and then up during the day and so my schedule was all off. And So I'd been laying there reading uh, from a particular book and, and I read this chapter, it was actually from a book by Larry Crabb and I read this chapter and, and the essence of the chapter was just articulating the beauty of what it meant to be a forgiven and accepted son. And it just was, it just tore me apart. I was, I was, I, it was, it was so incongruent with the reality of how I was living. I just got up and I just went for a walk. It's probably about one o'clock in the morning. And, and it was, I was living at, basically in this tent city. It was tents as far as you could see. And when you're in Saudi Arabia, there are no trees in case you're wondering. And so basically the sky is enormous. Like it goes from there to there and it's one o'clock in the night and there's not a cloud in the sky. And, and all I can tell you is like, you feel very, very small looking up at these ginormous constellations and, and I'm so little and I'm walking and I'm walking and I'm wrestling with God, I'm wrestling with God and I, I came back around and I, and I got back to my tent and just felt the weight of all that had been true, all the lies, all the deception, all the pretending and I, I couldn't believe what I had just read, I just couldn't and I found myself going and sitting down on the air conditioner that was air conditioning our tent and, and so it's, it's loud and it's buzzing and I'm sitting there and I just began to weep. She began to cry out to God and I just need to say like on that night, like Jesus came to me. No, not, not visibly, he didn't show up at the air conditioner, no, no, but like, but unmistakably that Jesus came and he wrapped his grace and love around me in a way that I had not known in a long, long time and maybe if I'm honest, maybe never to that degree. And what I heard from him, what I, what I was able to, to start wrapping my heart and arms around was that indeed I was forgiven. That he had come for me and, and that I could be his again. He had come for me. In the quiet of that loud place, he had come for me. Now, there, there would be an undulating journey for the next couple of years for that, for that forgiveness and for that acceptance to work its way into my heart and for it to actually start showing up in my life and in, in the formation of my soul. But, but I know on that night that the Lord came for me. And, and in a way, I've never been the same. So what happened when, um, when Jesus met with Peter? I, I don't know for sure. Was Peter surprised? I, I would say probably, definitely. Uh, were there, was there tears and repentance from Peter? Uh, most likely. Was there, was there grace? Was there forgiveness? Was there acceptance from Jesus from the repentant heart of, of Peter? Absolutely.
Why does the resurrection matter? Why is it such good news? Because it is what has the real power to transform us in it. You see, the power of the good news, the power of the gospel, is that Jesus died for you. That Jesus rose for you and that he meets you in in a very tangible and real way, as it were, personally to show you by his risen body, by his risen life, and to tell you that the wrong that you've done has indeed been covered. It's been buried. It's been put to death. That the resurrection is the declaration that the payment has been accepted by God. You're free. That's the unbelievable magnitude of what unfolded when Jesus was raised from the dead. And that's what's true of you today if you claim him. You see, there is an and Peter that is spoken about you, that that I believe is spoken to you. My only question is, have you heard it? Are you hearing it this morning? The invitation, whether for the first time or for the 20th time, to come home, to return to the one who has made you and has known you since the foundations of the world and longs to call you son and daughter. That's what the resurrection made possible. That's why this is such a day of celebration and joy. He came for you. He did. He came for Peter, and Peter was never the same. You know the mark of someone who's had Jesus show up and declare the reality of a resurrected Jesus in his own life is that one of the next times we see Peter interact with Jesus is when he's sitting on a boat, and Jesus is on the shore, and John suddenly realizes after Jesus has done a miracle with the fish, John, who's clearly the perceptive one, goes, bro, in the Greek. It's the Lord. And what does Peter do? He takes off his coat and he jumps in. He, he moves towards him. Why? Because, because the Lord had come to him, you see. He'd come for him and he knew it that he knew it that he knew it. He had encountered the risen Savior. And you can too today. Let's pray. Father, We stand amazed. If we really try to wrap our hearts and minds around the reality of what you've done, we stand amazed at what you've done. That you came for us. That you didn't die for the generic sins of the world, that you actually came for us, for our stuff. You bore it, and then you rose in victory. And that that victory is not some pallid or empty cry of a warrior. No, it's actually the inviting, beckoning tender call of someone who loves us. And so we want to respond to that. We want to, we want to answer that call with worship, with wonder and with awe. So Lord, receive our worship as thanksgiving because you rose from the dead for our justification. We are alive. 
So we thank you, we praise you, we worship you now in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.